Welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we'll finish off our look at William Buckley, the first white man to live amongst the Wathawurrung people around the western side of what we know today as Port Phillip Bay in Victoria. But his time living amongst the Kulin nations was coming to a close, as the colonists arrived in ever larger numbers, disrupting their ancient way of life and causing great loss into the future. Today, we'll conclude his story, reflecting on how he rejoined his original white society and felt the grief of unsuccessfully trying to mediate between the two cultures. He knew he'd experienced something extraordinary in living amongst his Wathawurrung clans, and in his later years Buckley sought out Morgan in order to record his story before he died. Before I start, though, I'd like to thank Danielle H., Janine H., and Michelle G. for helping to keep the show on the road, all of whom have made contributions in the past as well. I'm so glad you're still loving the stories. Also, my appreciation goes to David S. this month, who helped out recently too. Many thanks. All right, back to the Buckley story. I've used a number of additional sources for this final episode as colonists began arriving on the country of the Kulin Nations and as a place for Melbourne to develop was identified. So have a look at this episode's reference list for those additional titles. We left off the last episode just as Buckley was to hear about John Batman's intended settlement around Port Phillip Bay. In the years since Collins had first attempted the mixed free and convict settlement at Sullivan Bay, and failed, there was not a great deal of interest from authorities in trying again, except that keeping the French out was always on the agenda. And they did try again briefly for a military garrison in the late 1820s in Western Port. In the following decades, whalers and sealers did eventually set up various temporary and more permanent whaling stations around the coast, becoming a problem for the local people on whose land they occupied. And of course, over the decades that Buckley was in residence, various explorers, such as Hume and Hovel, travelled through the areas in what we today call Victoria. Sometime around 1831, a ship had made landfall on the western side of the bay, and they were closely watched by the local men in the area. When the ship's occupants rowed to land and went exploring, three of the local men sneaked on board to investigate. <laughs> now that's gutsy. They took a number of items from the deck, including a flag, some rope, canvas and some glass and the like. All very interesting and unusual items. When the ship's occupants returned and noticed the items had been taken, they fired at the indigenous men they saw on the shore, and then raised their anchor and sailed further off into the bay. Of course, the boat was of great interest, and they were followed along the bay's coast the local men deciding they should try and lure the ship's men onto land again, where they could attack and kill them, and then take the rest of the exciting goods on board. They told Buckley their plan, explaining they would need his help to do so. Always reluctant to be involved in violence, Buckley was appalled, and he tried to talk the men out of the idea, reminding them of the lethal weapons the white men would use to resist them. But they were determined to attack and take possession of the goods, and Buckley was obliged to assist his people, helping to build a fire that might draw the sailors onto shore, though he described in his biography that his intention then was to attract their attention so as to warn them of the imminent danger. Fortunately for those aboard the ship, they didn't row to shore to see what was going on. Instead, they travelled some miles further up the coast, where it turned out they buried a shipmate on the beach before departing a few days later. But Buckley now knew what was probably on the cards for the next visitors. After increasingly unpleasant contact with the incoming whites, particularly the abusive sealers, and more aware now of their intent on settling permanently on Coolan lands, as they had done in New South Wales, his people had hardened their responses, and new white men arriving might now be killed. In the months following, Buckley recorded finding a large barrel washed ashore. He was keen to salvage the metal hoops, which would have been very handy items for his kinsmen, and he described knocking the top in and tasting the contents, noting, quote, 
I could not fancy what the liquid contents were, having lived so long in the bush without tasting any other drink than water. The flavour appeared to be horribly offensive, and the smell equally so. It must have been beer or wine not being strong enough for spirits, unquote. And he let the lot run into the sand, quote, to prevent mischief should the natives take a fancy to it, although so utterly nauseous to my palate, unquote. No doubt he would have had some vague recollection of the alcohol-fueled bender that had caused him to be on this side of the world in the first place. <laughs> Nothing but trouble to be had. But the hoop-iron was very welcome when he got the pieces to his friends. So there was a slowly increasing European presence and intrusion into the Kulin lands since that early settlement attempt. But in general, the governing bodies were content to leave the situation as it was in the land south of the declared settlement of New South Wales and of Van Diemen's Land, those places being sanctioned settlement sites, albeit on lands forcefully commandeered from the first inhabitants. And the authorities mainly ignored the unsanctioned exploration that was occurring. Towards the 1830s, there was growing pressure for more land to be made available for livestock, particularly from the Vandemonians across Bass Strait, which really ramped up desire for a reassessment and access to the lands in what was then described as the Port Phillip District. Previous investigations had resulted in differing assessments, ranging from reports of excellent grasslands, resembling English parks, to swampy, sandy and agriculturally useless land. Naturally, there would be some of each, but by the 1830s there was a great deal more private investigation occurring around Port Phillip and Western Port Bays, just to confirm those descriptions. Despite Collins's earlier disappointment, these more recent parties did find much more promising land with reliable water sources, perfect for grazing stock, and the push was on to claim some, despite the government's reluctance to allow it. John Batman described one area as, quote, the most beautiful sheep pasturage I ever saw in my life. I'm sure I can see 50,000 acres of land in all direction and not 50 trees. Unquote. He must have been salivating at that site. John Batman had built a successful grazing operation around Kingston in Van Diemen's Land, but was unable to expand further due to a lack of available land. He and a colleague, lawyer Joseph Jellybrand, applied for a substantial leasehold around Westernport, which was declined. The authorities could not decide on how to officially manage any opening up of access to the Port Phillip district of New South Wales, now Victoria. Governor Arthur in Van Diemen's Land, though, seemed a little more sympathetic to the idea, though he had no authority to grant any such permissions. Those who knew him seemed to have taken his silence as quiet support, though, and the Henties were the first to simply cart their sheep over the strait to the Portland area of Western Victoria in November of 1834. They simply squatted on land there while awaiting a response to a petition and appeal for land which they had made directly to England. While they were not successful in getting a formal grant, nor were they warned off staying there, and so, as a blind eye was being turned to those arriving unauthorised and carving out squatters' rights in the Port Phillip district, so now others ramped up their plans for getting a foot in the door. Batman and Jellybrand, undeterred by their earlier rejections, soon formed a company to raise funds for further exploration around the bays, with a view to claim some land while there was still plenty to grab, but their approach to their claim this time would be unique. The Port Phillip Association would aim to, quote-unquote, purchase the land they designed from the local natives there. In May of 1835, Jellybrand drafted a treaty which Batman would present to the chiefs of the Kulin nations, granting them access to the native lands in return for payment of sorts. The agreement indicated access to more than 600,000 acres in return for the annual provision of handkerchiefs and flour, 30 axes, 40 blankets and just 100 knives. What a bargain! Believing he had met with eight chiefs who, quote, possessed the whole of the country near Port Phillip, unquote, and who signed agreement to the transaction, in June of 1835, Batman returned from his mission in Port Phillip declaring he had succeeded and he was now, quote, the greatest landholder in all the world, unquote. 
In setting up his camp and acquiring his pasture by treaty, Batman's document recorded the only negotiated agreement attempted in relation to any occupation on Aboriginal lands in Australia, albeit proffered by a white man with no authority to do so. Officially, they were trespassing on Crown land and had no sanctioned approval from the Governor to be there, let alone negotiate any treaty or land purchase. Still, the men of the Port Phillip Association were being flexible on quite a few legal, cultural and ethical formalities. Like Henty before them, let's just move forward and see where we end up, eh? Batman had left his men at the camp at Indented Head, returning to Van Diemen's Land, claiming he now had possession of the whole of the Bellarine Peninsula and the coastal lands all the way between Geelong and the Yarra owing to the treaty he had secured, by payment, of what would be exceptionally meagre if regular tribute to the Aboriginals there. He had already noted the area around the Yarra as being a perfect, quote, place for a village, unquote, and would later relocate their main presence there. But for now, he made for Launceston to set in motion the relocation of men, women and livestock of the Port Phillip Association. Larkins notes that the First Nations people at the treaty meeting with Batman, representatives of several tribes, it seems, from amongst the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung, did receive blankets, clothing, looking-glasses, knives and tomahawks, scissors and flour, and these items were to be paid annually in return for the land. But given that the concept of land ownership was not possible in their culture, they probably more likely interpreted the offerings as gifts, which would allow the white men temporary access to their lands. Linnell suggested they might have interpreted this gift-giving as part of a tanderum, a ceremony allowing safe passage to visitors travelling through their country. They made a mark on the document as encouraged, but this would not have been understood as the transaction Batman desired and expected. Larkins also reminds us to consider, though, that in offering this kind of agreement, Batman was at least acknowledging that the Kulin nations already had ownership rights, as understood by the Western legal system, over the land they were on. And that is an interesting thing. It proved to be a very problematic concept for the governors and the British authorities, who had previously declared the entire continent to be terra nullius, nobody's land. But that's a discussion for another day, perhaps. Batman's time in Van Diemen's land had already showed him that the local warriors would fight to remain on their land, almost down to the last man, and that the shepherds and the isolated settlers would be in the firing line too, in their fight to repel invaders. He had been intimately involved in the Black Wars in Van Diemen's land. Larkin recounted one occasion when he was with, quote, a roving party, unquote, a killing squad really where, on this occasion, they killed ten indigenous men and two women, wounding and taking a number more prisoner, though he reported he was later, quote-unquote, obliged to kill those wounded as they could no longer walk. Even the governor, for whom he was really undertaking this work, noted that Batman had, quote, much slaughter to account for, unquote. So he was not averse to taking land by extreme force, but he knew there would be a toll for his shepherds too, and so he thought they might do better with a treaty or purchase agreement for claiming lands in the Port Phillip district. And so he had that treaty drawn up before he arrived to parley with the peoples of the Kulin nations. This really was a pivotal time in the colonial history of what would later become Victoria, and, of course, in the future of the Kulin nations who would be impacted, and so it requires a little more investigation, though our focus will remain on Buckley. In July of 1835, two men from Bangala clan had come looking for Buckley. They told him some white men, indeed three white men and five or six black men, had come with many gifts and set up some white houses making camp. Larkin surmises that the white houses were probably canvas tents. The Bengala men, Bengala is a place name for indented heads, showed him the handkerchiefs and scissors they'd been given. What they really wanted, though, were the metal hatchets they'd seen at the camp. But the white men would not make gifts of those. So they told him they were on their way to gather a war party to attack the group and take the desired goods by force. Once again, Buckley was upset by the impending conflict and potential for loss of life. 
He was going to be placed in the middle of these two groups again in a confrontation that was surely going to cause many deaths and he was desperate to avert the bloodshed. Unable to dissuade the Bengala men from their plan, he decided he must approach the white men himself and warn them. And so, for the first time in more than 30 years, Buckley was going to approach a British camp. Doing so would not have been his desire. An Aboriginal companion noted that, with increasing ships appearing in the bay over the years and men coming ashore for water and wood, Buckley had never made any effort to make himself known to them. He was content with his living arrangements as they were. But now, despite not remembering any of his native English language, he was going to have to expose himself and try and warn the incomers, and mediate to avoid conflict between the two groups. The prospect filled him with mixed emotions and high anxiety. After living amongst his Wallaranga clan for more than 30 years, experiencing, quote, unmistakable liberty and perfect freedom, unquote, he was now about to make contact with his old society and possibly risk being arrested by them, having absconded from custody all those years back. He described being, quote, overwhelmed with feelings connected to the past, the present and the future, unquote. So on July 6th, 1835, Buckley approached the camp wearing his prized possum skin cloak and he sat hidden for some time observing. When one of the Aboriginals accompanying the white party saw him and pointed him out, he rose, approached them slowly and sat next to the other blacks present, laying his weapons on the ground. He had been nervous they may shoot him on sight, but so far so good. The white men in the party included James Gum, Andrew or possibly William Todd, and Alec Thompson. They'd been left holding the fort for Batman, along with several Aboriginal men from around the Port Jackson and Shoalhaven regions, who would assist in making contact with the local Aboriginal groups around the bay, though their language capabilities and knowledge of the Kulin nations would have been limited. John Batman himself had already returned to Launceston in Van Diemen's Land to gather more supplies and men for his camp. Buckley saw they intended to stay. The white men had already built permanent structures and begun planting gardens. And though it was some time before their mission became clear to him, Buckley would have realised very soon afterwards that this arrangement could only mean difficulty and danger to his adopted clansmen. And in the early days at least some anxiety for him in possibly being recognised as a runaway convict. Batman's men were at first very confused about who Buckley was. They noted he was, quote, clad in the manner of the natives and appeared to be a great chief, unquote, though I'm not sure what gave them that impression, except perhaps the impressive cloak. They noted he was without trousers <laughs> and that his skin was obviously lighter than the other natives. Both his beard and hair were groomed in the Wallaranga custom, beard close and hair shoulder length. The subsequent pictures drawn of him with long hair and a flowing white beard, to better fit the wild white man title, were more fabrication than truth. Apparently, even then, in his fifties, he still had dark brown hair. They noted he was a tall man, certainly so amongst the Europeans, though he was not much taller than most of his Wallaranga clan brothers, in fact, and he looked very well fed, fit and healthy. But they very soon realised that he was a white man living as a native. Larkins recounts some of the responses from the men present and those who arrived soon after in the next ship. Wedge recorded his description of Buckley as, quote, height, six foot five and seven eighth inches, without shoes, brown complexion, round head, dark brown hair and whiskers, visage round and marked with smallpox, forehead low, eyebrows bushy, hazel eyes, nose pointed and turned up, well proportioned, with an erect military gait, unquote. During that first encounter, Buckley recorded, quote, at length one of them came up and asked me some questions which I could not understand, but when he offered me bread, calling it by its name, a cloud seemed to pass from over my brain, and I soon repeated that and other English words after him. Somehow or other, I soon made myself understood to them as not being a native-born, and so the white men took me to their tents and clothed me, giving me biscuit, tea and meat. And they were, indeed, all very kind in every way." Unquote. Don't you find that early interaction interesting? 
he was without trousers, <laughs> and discovering he was a white man after all, the main thing was to get some white man clothes on him. <laughs> it must have been pants on Monday at the indented head camp. It was such a big deal covering his body. It was very civilising, apparently. The clothing might have helped prompt him in memories of his youth and previous life, though, too. Amazed at his arrival in their camp, they were very keen to get to know him. As mentioned earlier, he'd lost his capacity to speak English after all that time, to clearly explain who he was and how he'd come to be there, but words began to return and he was able to begin to communicate somewhat. He recalled, quote, My sensations I cannot describe. As I could not explain them in my mother tongue, I showed the initials WB on one of my arms, by which they began to sympathise and look upon me as a long-lost castaway, unquote. Todd made a sketch of the tattoos, which would later help positively identify him as the convict Buckley. Buckley stayed around the white camp for much of the time, gradually regaining his English language skills and learning more of their intentions. When he understood what year it was, he was apparently shocked to realise that he'd been nearly 32 years with his adopted clan since leaving the convict settlement. Far from the 23-year-old escapee, he was now a 55-year-old man. <laughs> Always adept at spinning the most positive yarn and not wanting to be taken into custody again, he initially told the white man he was a sailor, shipwrecked so long ago the name of the ship and the captain faded from memory. Fortunately, they didn't question his explanation much further. Soon, he became aware of the additional European settlements up and down the coast of the country and right across Van Diemen's land, almost all new since he had left the colonial fold 32 years before. But he understood what such a spread of white settlement would have meant to the local indigenous inhabitants at each place, and he was more anxious than ever about the future prospects for his own mob. Buckley was entering into another new phase of his life. He would have a lot of difficulty trying to manage relationships and to straddle the two very different cultures. And in keeping close company with the white men in the camp, he was already beginning to risk a loss of trust amongst the men of the Kulin nations. He soon learned that Batman claimed to have recently made a treaty with the local chiefs and acquired a huge area of grazing land around what would later become Melbourne. Of course, the clan leaders who may have been involved in Batman's treaty would not have had the concept of land ownership that Batman did, and so could not have quote-unquote sold him the land as we would understand it today. They could not have ceded any country or transferred any land ownership, a concept entirely alien to them and any clan leader Batman met with to sign his treaty would not have had authority to act on behalf of all the Kulin Nation's people anyway. Such a broad hierarchical structure of an overarching chief ruling over the nations did not exist in their culture. But the assumption by Batman was that a legal purchase of sorts had been made with his treaty. In living so comfortably with his Wallaranga family, Buckley had for more than 30 years Quote, fancied myself comparatively happy and that I could gladly have ended my days there, unquote. But his contact with the white men in the camp and the return of his language was also becoming comfortable and he was spending more time there. His original language was returning more and more each day. Larkin suggests when he was offered a gun and accepted it, that decision signified his shift from his life being Murrungurk of the Wathawarong back to being the old Englishman, Buckley. But the transition would continue to be fraught and emotionally taxing. While Buckley remained in the white camp, the days stretching into weeks, recovering his language skills and discovering what their intentions were, the Bengala and other clan men continued to gather nearby, their numbers swelling daily. They'd been given a number of additional gifts from the camp, but they still seemed keen on their original idea for liberating all they wanted from the camp, and Buckley had to convince them not to attack. Some in the gathering were beginning to worry that Buckley may not be loyal to them and their needs. There was a dispute about whether maintaining friendly relations was wise, or whether simply attacking the camp and taking what they wanted was the best approach. Some of the stealthier Aboriginal men had managed to sneak in and take more of the tools, and the men in Batman's camp were becoming agitated about the thefts and the growing number of warriors in the area. 
In order to buy time, Buckley assured the warriors that another, more generously laden ship with more and better quality goods was on its way, and that they should all stay calm and wait for that to arrive before they made any moves. He was hoping to broker some kind of exchange that would avoid the slaughter the clans thought was necessary to get hold of the goods, and to be rid of the incomers. So he was keen to save the men in the white camp, but I believe he was just as keen to reduce the likelihood of casualties that would come from the weapons the white man had, weapons that would inflict a severe toll on the Kulin men, even if the warriors attacked in great numbers. It must have been an excruciating time, trying to keep everyone calm and patient, but they did agree to wait for the new ship, and the white camp kept guard, just in case. As Larkins put it, quote, his main concern was to avoid bloodshed, and particularly his own. He didn't want to die, he didn't want his black friends slaughtered, and he didn't want the whites killed either, unquote. In his best effort at avoiding disloyalty, he simply suggested the men at the camp might ensure they had a 24-hour guard operating to reduce the theft, but he didn't tell them about the plans for attack, fearing their anxiety might make them gun-happy, risking indiscriminate firing that might also affect the women and children amongst the gathering clans. Any such start would result in slaughter on both sides. But with his ongoing mediation, they all managed to survive the month without warfare, and Batman's supply ship, the Rebecca, finally arrived, with very attractive goods on board. Their patience had been rewarded, and great bloodshed avoided, at least for now. After the ship's arrival, Buckley noted the Wathawarong people, quote, made great rejoicings, jumping round and round me in the wildest manner, tapping me on the shoulders to show their delight at my not having deceived them and, of course, at the arrival of the expected presence, unquote. When Henry Batman, John Batman's brother, arrived on the Rebecca, taking charge until his brother returned, he asked if Buckley would help them befriend and negotiate with the local people. He said yes, and he suggested that they distribute food first. The locals then held a corroboree, and friendly relations seemed to have been achieved. Settler families on the Rebecca came ashore, and further building and planting took place in the settlement there over the following weeks. It seems they felt confident they would not be driven off by the Aboriginal people around them. John Wedge also arrived on the Rebecca to act as the association's surveyor, and he struck up a warm relationship with Buckley. He was keen on collecting local Indigenous artefacts, and he asked Buckley if he could have the club he'd made and carried with him, and Buckley did gift it to him. Larkins notes this item was sent back to Essex and remains in a collection there, now held at the Saffron Walden Museum. They seemed to get on very well, and Wedge made a great many sketches and took notes about their early encounter. He asked Buckley to show him around the region, and they travelled around visiting some country that would have been highly attractive to Wedge and the others, looking to the potential for grazing and agriculture in the pristine lands, thanks to the careful land management practices, such as the regular burning which had made the area so desirable as grazing lands. Wedge, who also seemed to have a genuine anthropological interest in Buckley and his mob, recorded a great deal of material about Buckley's experiences with the Wathawarong along with recording what he was seeing in the landscape, and his journals, though not published until 1885 in parliamentary papers, are now another source of information we have about the first months of Buckley's interaction with the white world again. But probably more importantly, as a record of the past, Buckley spoke to him about many of the indigenous beliefs and behaviours he'd experienced. Buckley advised the Kulin Nation's people had no hereditary chiefs, the respected elders earning their stripes through usefulness and value to the community, demonstrated through hunting and fighting. Leaders were chosen on merit, and such skilled men would be respected by all. There was no social class or caste system, and there was no slavery. And this was an unbelievable thing for the class-riddled colonists, having first encounters with the Aboriginals, that they were continually looking for, indeed imagining, that there must be some chief they could parley with. And yet for the First Nations people themselves, a workable system which had markers to indicate mutual respect and protocols on how they should greet, communicate and negotiate with each other, had accomplished a successful political structure over millennia. It has to be noted within that system there was a lot of ongoing inter-clan fighting, but throughout history there was constant war across Europe and between the quote-unquote civilised peoples too, 
So conflict between us and them seemed to be a sorry staple of humanity just about everywhere. Buckley was impressed by his mob's careful stewardship of the food resources, eating in season and taking only enough to eat, leaving plenty to regenerate or reproduce, but they were also careful in general of other environmental resources and impacts, burning to clear and regenerate the land at the appropriate time, and felling trees only on rare occasions, instead stripping bark without total ring barking to ensure the tree's survival, making use of already fallen branches, and so on. He noted how special items were traded across vast distances through multiple tribal lands, such as the highly valued stone used for some axes. The women generally undertook the harvesting and agricultural care of the vegetable resources and caught smaller animal food sources, while the men generally hunted the larger game. The women usually undertook the crafts that would produce baskets and nets, cloaks and sewed, while the men would generally craft the canoes, tools and weapons they needed. The men also did most of the inter-clan fighting, though women might join in if their assistance was required or if they were attacked unexpectedly, and the tools they used for tending their vegetables might be used as weapons at this time. While Buckley later told a lot more of his reflections on Aboriginal life to Morgan in his later years, he appears never to have shared any of the sacred business of his adopted clan. Having respect for their culture and stories, he never discussed his Christian religion with them and did not disclose any culturally sensitive information, if he knew it, once he returned to his white society. That was one element of his ongoing loyalty and not forcing his religion on them was something that his Christian society harshly judged him for on his return to their society. According to many, it was his duty to bring such heathens to their Christian beliefs. Even Wedge thought Buckley negligent in failing to do so. Buckley spoke of things which were surprising and unusual to the Europeans, such as trying to explain to them the deep spiritual connection to the land and the environment that the First Nations people held. It was such a difficult concept for the land-owning and money-motivated Europeans. That their spiritual beliefs did not include one single god, such as a Christian god Buckley was familiar with from his childhood, was something that Wedge could not comprehend. To his cultural beliefs, this only served as a proof that the natives were quote-unquote inferior, not being Christian. And this widespread attitude, of course, led to inequality and unfair behaviour towards the Aboriginal people. If you are less than one of God's children, all manner of appalling behaviour can be justified in how others might treat you. Buckley recorded they didn't pray, worship or sacrifice to any God, though they did believe in an afterlife of some kind. The Wathawarrung shared a common creation story and totems with other Kulin Nations people, which saw Bunjil, an eagle hawk, as the primary creation force. The Bunjil story has been much shared and I've placed a couple of links on the webpage to get you started if you're interested. I recall going for a day hike around the Yuyangs or Wurdi Yuang and seeing a brilliant Bunjil geoglyph from a high point there. If you're in the neighbourhood I would highly recommend that walk. Again I'll provide a link for more information. The people of the Kulin nations had their own dream time or origin stories for all important things like the arrival of people and their creation of fire, for instance. Buckley describes the fire origin story as he understood it this way, quote, A native woman was digging at an anthill one day for the purpose of getting their eggs for eating, when a crow flying over her dropped something like dry grass, which immediately blazed and set a tree on fire. For this reason they very much respect the waki, the crow, and do not kill and eat him unless pressed by necessity, unquote. Over time, Buckley was able to accept the folklore of his adopted community, including a belief in the Bunyip, a fearful amphibious creature that tended to inhabit billabongs and rivers. Though he recorded that he could never get a clear picture of what the creature might look like, or even its size. Nonetheless, he did record having a scary encounter with something he believed was probably a Bunyip, stating, quote, It appeared to be covered with feathers of a dusky grey colour, it seemed to be about the size of a full-grown calf. The creatures only appear when the weather is very calm and the water smooth, unquote. Larkins notes, it was very likely an emu or an emu carcass in the water, but we've all had those freaky moments. 
usually precipitated by some existing anxiety, when we've almost seen something out of the corner of our eye, haven't we? And when that story came to the attention of his white community, Larkins continues, quote, Buckley's belief in the mythical creature was held to ridicule, but he's probably the person responsible for the word bunyip entering the Australian idiom, unquote. The bunyip as a sort of mythical creature yarn is still familiar to many of us today and there are a number of reworked stories associated. I don't know where I've heard it now, but some have suggested that a bunyip may have been responsible for the death of the jolly swagman in the billabong. <laughs> so that lets the troopers off the hook anyway, doesn't it? Here's another controversial point of interest. Despite the British continually warning the convicts about the dangerous cannibal natives surrounding the convict outposts, Buckley never saw the kind of cannibalism that many escaped convicts seemed to indulge in. He did record, however, that on occasion he saw the victors, quote, eat a small portion of flesh of their adversaries slain in battle. They appeared to do it not from any particular partiality for human flesh, but from the impression that by eating their enemies they would themselves become more able warriors. Many of them are disgusted with this ceremony and refuse to eat, merely rubbing their bodies with a small portion of the fat as a charm equally efficient." Unquote. He also noted that the body parts of a slain person may be returned to his clan and cremated, or roasted as he put it, so that relics such as the bones of the kneecap, for example, could be processed to be kept and sometimes worn in some manner by family members as a respectful memento of their lost family member, a sort of extension of keeping a tooth or a lock of hair, perhaps. So we might surmise that they did not have the revulsion of dealing with a deceased's remains, the way that Buckley's white Christian community had, but instead they had a more ritualistic, even respectful use of the dead bodies despite the appearance of brutality than the kind of bloodlust and desire to feast on human flesh that was often touted as their cannibalistic nature at that time. For the European, it was such a different approach to the standard Christian mores around death, it must have been hard to understand and impossible to suppress revulsion at the seemingly gruesome behaviour on first encounter. And sometimes there were some very confronting behaviours undertaken, according to Buckley. Sometimes body parts of the fallen enemies were brought back to camp and, quote, beaten about with sticks. The men cut flesh off the bones and stones were heated for baking it, after which they greased their children with it all over. The bones were broken to pieces with tomahawks and given to the dogs, or put in the boughs of trees for birds of prey hovering over the horrid scene, unquote. So Buckley concedes that these people were cannibals in the strict sense of the word, under particular circumstances, though not in general, as was the assumption. Here again we see a story of bodily mutilation and interpret it as revenge behaviour, disrespect and barbarism, which may have been part of the motivation, but we don't really know what the actions meant to these people. Is it, as in some cultures, the absorbing of the manner of revered warriors? or a protective ritual warding off more violence, or is it indeed something designed to humiliate the losers? But the idea is a common one around the world. I believe there were similar concepts applied by some Maori peoples, and certainly some tribes in Papua New Guinea, amongst many others. Now, didn't the Hawaiians dismember and eat parts of Captain Cook for similar reasons? His bones, though, were finally placed with their revered ancestors' remains, surely a mark of respect and recognition of his esteemed position. Anyway, such cultural practices might be appalling to the Western Christians, perhaps, but were not uncommon elsewhere in the world, under differing spiritual belief structures. Now, I know this will be controversial and rather uncomfortable to recount and hear, but there was a level of infanticide practice, too, according to Buckley's biographical recollections. Buckley noted that a woman having a baby that was not her husband's was seen as a disgrace and such a baby may be put to death. Babies born malformed or disabled in some way that would require additional work and resources from the group might also be killed, though the baby's father had the final say in the group making such a decision. And we know that Nullaboyne chose to keep and care for his blind son. 
Their obligation to live in a sustainable manner in the consumption of resources meant if the family numbers increased too quickly, having another baby within 12 months of an earlier child, for example, its fate may be at the mercy of the community council if times were lean. In the sources I used, I did not see a mention about the elderly and euthanasia in tough times, so I do not know if a lifetime of contributing to the community gave you the right for additional care in your dotage. <sighs> Controversial suggestions here, I know, but even these ideas must be considered in the light of a completely different cultural landscape to the one we inhabit today. In general, though, Buckley noted just how kind and patient the community and parents were to their children. They were rarely reprimanded, and they were included in the community activities as soon as they could toddle about, though indulging in fun and playing were always perfectly acceptable pastimes for the children. Having said that, though, there seemed to be no taboo on killing the children of another clan if an adult was not available when a payback killing was deemed necessary, as was recounted after Nullaboyne's blind son was murdered. And this is a shocking thing for us, considered worse than killing an adult. It's just truly awful altogether, isn't it? So let's return to Buckley at Batman's camp now. Many of the Wathawarrung were still unhappy that Buckley had talked them out of attacking and repelling these invaders, and history might show they might have been right in wanting to defend themselves and their way of life, though of course nothing was going to stop the tide of white settlement that was coming. It would be lose-lose for them all in the coming decades, whether they had killed Batman's men or not. While a treaty and land purchase might have seemed like a good idea to Batman, such a thing was impossible. For the first Australians, their, quote, clan territory was inalienable and non-transferable, collectively held in permanent trust, unquote. Batman may have believed he'd negotiated for access and was expecting to take possession around the bay, but with land ownership not being a thing in this Indigenous society, no such thing could be traded. No sale for exclusive ownership was actually achievable. Any such treaty agreement, as Larkins puts it, quote, would be illegal under both Aboriginal law and British law. It was illegal under Aboriginal law because the Kulin had well-defined clan boundaries with time-honoured protocols that restricted access to their country. Under British law, it was illegal because the New South Wales governor wanted to avoid the lawlessness which experience had shown was the inevitable result of an uncontrolled frontier." Unquote. So, despite the idea we have that Batman secured a treaty in Melbourne, purchasing and by agreement, no such thing was actually possible. When Buckley came to understand what Batman had attempted, he said, quote, Word by word I began to comprehend what they said, and soon understood that they intended to remain in the country, that they have seen several of the native chiefs with whom, as they said, they had exchanged all sorts of things for land but that I knew could not have been, because, unlike other savage communities or people, they have no chiefs claiming or possessing any superior right over the soil, theirs only being the heads of families. Unquote. Buckley understood the sale of country that could never be owned by anyone, only used and managed by those who belong to it, could not take place. No treaty could be agreed to by more than the families involved, and even then they would not have understood, having never before experienced it, any concept of land enclosure and exclusive use for stocking and agriculture. Buckley knew, quote, The land dealing spoken of was another hoax of the white man to possess the inheritance of the uncivilized natives of the forest, whose tread on the vast Australian continent will very soon be no more heard, and whose crimes and sorrows are fast fading away, amongst other recollections of the past, unquote. Of course, when Morgan wrote those words, Buckley was by then living back in his own white society in Tasmania, a place where the colonists had, in fact, cleared virtually all of the indigenous inhabitants off the lands they wanted. The last few hundred they could round up were sent off to Flinders Island under the quote-unquote care of a protectorate, forced to live far from their own country, isolated from their spiritual and cultural needs their numbers fast dwindling as a disease and despair took their toll. Whatever legal document Jellybrand had written up, and which Batman believed had been agreed to by the local chiefs he had to sign it, was most certainly understood differently by the parties involved, 
and could not be legally binding. When Buckley explained that to Wedge, and he was made to understand these Aboriginal communities did not have chiefs making decisions for them, Wedge was also immediately aware the agreement could have no real effect. Wedge later explained in his biography, quote, The tribes are divided into families, or rather I should say composed of them, each tribe comprising of 20 to 60 of them. They acknowledge no particular chief as being superior to the rest, but he who is most skilful and useful to the general community is looked upon with the greatest esteem, unquote. Wedge clearly understood the problem Buckley's advice meant for them, telling a colleague, quote, There is no such thing as chieftainship, but that is a secret that must, I suppose, be kept to ourselves, as it may affect the deed of conveyance, unquote. Hmm, so, a discussion for another day, perhaps. But for this story, we'll continue to look at how Buckley fared, now that he was torn between the two cultures. Buckley was quite clear that any treaty Batman thought he had was invalid and unworkable, but he knew that there was no stopping the march of settlers arriving with the desire for land, and he could foresee some of the dispossession and devastation to come for the Coolin peoples. In the months and couple of years that followed, his actions have later been interpreted as both treacherous and as acting to protect particular groups. Depending on your point of view, some considered he abandoned his clan and the society he had lived amongst for the previous 30 years, simply supporting the desires of the new incomers, the men of his first society, in helping to enable the dispossession of land and facilitate access for the squatters and spivs that would make their way to Victoria. Others could see the impossible position he was in, being unable to protect his adopted people or turn the tide of white settlement around instead working to mediate and to assist his mob to get the safest and best treatment he could muster from a rather uninterested white settler community. I tend to feel he was in that second camp, stuck between a rock and a hard place, doing the best he could after returning to the white society to encourage some justice and fairness. As the squatter numbers increased, including those like Faulkner, who took no interest in negotiating any formal treaty arrangements with the original inhabitants, he more and more recognised his lack of power to help. In the end, as things deteriorated further and he felt the frustration and pain of his failures, and the inevitable overwhelming of his adopted people, he simply chose to leave, rather than witness what he could not control, much as he had done when the violence of the clans had become too much for him, and he moved to live alone away from the Wallarunga in the years prior. He may have thought... Batman's flawed treaty might at least offer some protections to his mob. He knew the white land grab could not be stopped, and in the early days he was encouraged to believe Batman and his association would do their best to do the right thing. If, as Wedge told him, they simply wanted to graze sheep there and would not look to move the Kulin Nations people off the land, perhaps this was what he could help ensure. But of course Faulkner, Aitkins and the many others that followed had no such treaty with the Kulin Nations. Certainly, with the firepower accompanying the European encroachment, the Kulin warriors could not hold them off forever. The accusations of disloyalty came in time from both his adopted mob and from the white men coming in droves to take up land. And we know from his past he doesn't cope well with conflict. In the early months at Batman's camp, Buckley developed a tight relationship with Wedge, and at some point, feeling he could trust him, Buckley confided in him about how he had really come to live amongst the Wathawarrung. He had been getting more and more anxious that when he was finally rumbled about his fiction of being a shipwrecked sailor, he'd be arrested and returned to custody. Wedge was very supportive and he offered to petition the governor on his behalf, noting particularly how helpful Buckley had been for the Batman party in averting violence and in facilitating communications for the whites around Port Phillip Bay, and that he may continue to be of great assistance to the colonists. With Batman's support, the plea was successful and Buckley was later formally pardoned. When the Batman party moved their camp to the Yarra in the northeast of the bay, Buckley had already quite quickly reassimilated with his white community, returning to Western clothing, grooming, habits and food, though he remained indebted to and fond and caring of his adopted people. The new Batman settlement around the Yarra was on Wurundjeri country, and with customs similar to the Wathaburong, the Wurundjeri people expected those coming onto their land to share their belongings. 
After all, in making camp there they were using the Wurundjeri resources. When the blacks took items they required from the white camps, though, the whites saw that as theft, and Buckley was once again often having to mediate between agitated and soon hostile groups. There was also disagreement amongst the different nations, with some wanting to befriend the newcomers and acquire useful goods that had been promised, and others wanting to completely repel them from the Aboriginal land altogether. In October, these internal disagreements led to battles between the various clans in attendance, and those in the Clear Out the Whites camp flexed their muscle and planned a surprise attack on the settlers. But one of their group told Buckley of the plans, and Buckley felt obliged to tell Batman. The attack would no longer have the element of surprise, and the superior weapons at the white camp would likely decimate the larger number of warriors. Hoping to spare the Aboriginal lives as well as Batman's party, the warring parties were talked down, but tensions remained high, with many wanting to continue the attack. And of course, many keen on the attack now saw Buckley as a traitor and a collaborator. His old bonds were breaking down. Inevitably, the Governor of New South Wales declared Batman's treaty void, but the squatters were not physically evicted by the government, and they simply stayed on and continued to commandeer land. Soon there was enough bad blood between the two main rival groups, that's Faulkner Atkins and the Batman's Port Phillip investors, that they began encouraging the local blacks to attack their rivals, and it was becoming really dangerous. Buckley was again encouraged to help mediate. Buckley and John Batman presented themselves amongst the large group readying for attack, trying to talk them down. Buckley spoke to those who could translate his words into the various clan dialects, and one boy amongst them would later become an important Wurundjeri man. We mentioned the impressive William Barrack in the Kelly series, and he was a boy of around ten when he witnessed Buckley negotiating with his clan leaders. Buckley and Batman were able to dissuade them from attacking, but... Understanding the deep cultural conflicts, he also knew ongoing confrontation was going to be inevitable. Buckley's help in the matter was clearly evident, and Batman then gave him a paid position as, quote, interpreter, mediator, and guide. Batman settled in on the Yarra, building his home on the site of today's Southern Cross Station. Buckley, resurrecting some more long-forgotten skills, built the brick chimney there. Buckley and Batman also seemed to get on quite well, but he never took to Faulkner, and the feeling was mutual. As a colleague of his nemesis, Batman, Faulkner took every opportunity to denigrate Buckley, and he encouraged other settlers to view him with suspicion too. He was having little success in encouraging any understanding of the complex and valuable culture of the First Nations people amongst the white community around him. Smallpox was again taking its toll on the population, and tuberculosis was raging. Threatened attacks by large war parties began to recede, but reprisal killings were increasing, and alcohol was becoming a problem in both white and black societies. Buckley was recognising that he had very little ability to influence and reduce harm, and his distressing situation between the two cultures was becoming unbearable. The governor eventually sent men to help police the new settlements, and Buckley was offered a job, but again it seemed an impossible task. Vigilantism was increasing, and justice for his old mob was hard to come by. My feeling is he genuinely wanted to avoid the problems for both communities, but the inequality continued and his capacity to do any good was limited. Within two years of the first parties arriving and taking up land, the natural resources the Coolin had relied on were becoming scarce, and they were being excluded from much of their traditional country. Kangaroo numbers declined as farmers culled them to preserve grass for their sheep. Murnong and other land crops were trampled and eaten by the new hard-hooved animals, and seasonal resource gathering across open country was becoming very difficult as they were excluded from traditional lands. The Europeans even saw the regular burning as problematic and tried to stop the practice, completely oblivious to the fact that it was this cultural practice that had produced the attractive pasture lands in the first place. Present on the lands covering much of Victoria for at least 40,000 years, Aboriginal population numbers across Victoria before European arrival are estimated to have reached up to 50,000 before 1788 
according to Butlin, noted in Broom's book, but had been reduced mainly by waves of new diseases to about 10,000 by 1835. By the end of the 1840s, squatters occupied more than 20 million hectares, that's 80 million acres of the best Aboriginal land, in less than 15 years, and Aboriginal populations afterwards in Victoria probably got as low as only 800 or so. It took such a short time to bring the world's oldest continuous culture to extreme distress. Larkins records that later, when the devastation visited on his adopted people become clearer, Buckley claimed he sometimes regretted not letting that Yarra River attack go ahead. Perhaps it would have deterred the colonists for a few more precious years, but it could only ever be a delay. The colonisation of Victoria was one of the, quote, fastest land occupations in the history of empires, unquote, with its accompanying cultural annihilation occurring in less than a generation. It's pretty much the single go-between in those first couple of years Buckley had an impossible task to hold back the flood of change. Batman and his Port Phillip Association group were grateful for his mediation attempts, but Faulkner's group never trusted Buckley. And with little success in negotiating for justice for his adopted mob, he never really felt entirely comfortable with either community again, black or white. The Kulin people were becoming refugees in their own country and it was devastating and sorrowful situation. And soon George Robinson, having done his work in Tasmania, came to Port Phillip in 1839 to set up the so-called Aboriginal Protectorate in Port Phillip. Buckley, now devastated, decided to relocate to Van Diemen's Land in late December 1837, arriving in Hobart in early January, noting there was a, quote, kind of fever in town with hordes of people ready to depart for the new lands in Port Phillip, unquote. He made contact with the men he had known from the Sullivan Bay settlement and was given help to set up his new life in Hobart. In Van Diemen's land there were no longer the confrontational problems for Buckley to witness on that island because the authorities there had pretty much cleared the Tasmanian indigenous population off the land entirely. Buckley may not have at first been aware of the extent of the Black Wars there, even though his man Batman had been involved in the actions himself. But even so, he was becoming an old man who could no longer cope with the conflicts. Hobart, which was consolidated and settled by Collins and his shipmates from the Calcutta and the Ocean after they departed Sullivan Bay all those years ago, was now a thriving town of 14,000 people. And while Buckley had to adjust again to such large numbers of his original countrymen, he looked for work. However, his notoriety had reached Government House in Hobart, and the ever-curious John and Lady Franklin were very keen to meet and talk with him. They would have been very interested in his experiences. Though he generally kept a very low profile, as much as such a tall and striking man could, for a while he was quite the minor celebrity. He was approached by a theatre man who wanted to display him as a curio to tell his story to the public on stage. Buckley was horrified, wishing to simply blend into the background. In an effort to quietly settle in Hobart, he generally avoided talking about his experiences, but no doubt he would have entertained the Franklins. Then 57 years old, he was beyond resurrecting his Brickies career, but he was fortunate in finding a government job, possibly with the help of the Franklins, working at the immigrant home. He worked with a mechanic there and was befriended by his family. When the poor mechanic died unexpectedly, quote, leaving his family unprovided for, I tendered myself to the mother. She accepted me as her future husband, unquote. Now we might see this hasty marriage as a little bit creepy these days, perhaps, but without his help she would have been in a pretty dire situation, I imagine, and I think this act describes Buckley as being a thoughtful and caring bloke, perhaps. Though no doubt he was to gain great advantage from the arrangement, too. They married early in 1840 and appear to have had a happy marriage for the remainder of his life. And an interesting couple they would have made too, with Julia in her mid-twenties and by all accounts of remarkably short stature, and Buckley 58 years old and all of six foot six. <laughs> Buckley seems to have become very ill with typhus not long into his new marriage, describing it as, quote, the only severe illness I had undergone all my life, unquote, though clearly he had had smallpox as a child or youth, given the scarring noted on his face. His wife and adopted daughter cared for him, and he did recover, though he suggests he was never quite as fit again as previously. 
When the immigration home closed, he was moved to work for the Cascades Female Factory. And there's another place that we've discussed before, in episodes 26 and 27. He worked in the nurseries until he was 70 years old. Then he finally retired on a small pension in 1850, just as the Victorian gold rush was about to kick off. When the formal colony of Victoria came into being in 1851, they also gave him a small pension in recognition of his contributions to the founding of the colony in the 1830s. It was in his retirement that Buckley thought it timely to chronicle his experiences, and he approached Morgan to compile his life story, sitting for multiple interviews to recount his memories. It's this book I've mainly used in the series, along with Larkin's work previously noted, and there are two online open-access versions of Morgan's publication available, which I've linked to in the reference list. A James Bonwick also wrote an unauthorised story after Buckley refused to assist him. Larkin suggests Buckley thought Bonwick's attempt wholly unsympathetic to the Aboriginals, and that he declared Buckley, quote, tainted and degraded by his association with Aboriginal people. Unquote. Clearly, Buckley did not feel any such thing himself. Instead, recalling his life amongst the Wathawurrung with fondness and gratitude, respecting and admiring their skills, and appreciating their way of life as it could be lived before the colonists arrived. Seeing the destruction that followed and not being able to practically assist in protecting them and their way of life was a trauma for Buckley. Larkins notes, quote, In his later years, when Buckley reflected back on how things had once been, a sadness fell over him. Unquote. In December of 1855, Buckley was injured in a buggy accident, damaging his spine and causing paralysis, and he died soon afterwards on January 31, 1856. He was buried at St George's Burial Ground at Battery Point, the cemetery being closed in 1872, and Larkins advises no sign of his resting place remains. Many others wrote about Buckley too, in reviewing the stories told of Buckley over the many decades, Larkins notes that, quote, The besmirching of William Buckley's name began with John Faulkner and was extended by the pen of James Bonwick. It had a lasting effect, unquote, resulting in articles into the 20th century writing such lines as, quote, He sunk at once into barbarism. He was clad as a savage. He fed as a savage. He lived as a savage, unquote. He was called a cannibal, a wild man, and was marked by some as lazy and stupid. But with a more modern reading of the information, we can see that he was simply a man who was flexible and would not adhere to the racism and prejudice of his time. His religious views did not preclude him from looking on his companions as fully-fledged human beings, albeit living by a completely different set of cultural laws and mores. He approached them reflecting the humanity they showed him with curiosity and an appreciation for all of the successful and nuanced cultural practices that kept them and their country healthy and productive. His own humanity could never get comfortable with the level of violence attendant in the clan system, but nor did he approve of the violence the new colonists brought to their interactions. One of the things he was most heartily criticised for was not trying to convert his adopted family to Christianity. To the whites who could not understand any other culture, that was the one and only way. Buckley knew their different culture had its own spirituality, linked directly to their land, which worked for them over countless millennia. My feeling is he was an exceptional man, perhaps ahead of his time, certainly intelligent and interested, though potentially prickly and unable to compromise to put up with an unacceptable environment, and he was quite prepared to go it alone and leave a situation he deemed untenable. Now that's gutsy. He was described by some of the Europeans he met and worked with after returning to the white society as grumpy, sometimes rude and uncooperative. But I wonder if that was him just not suffering fools. Certainly he would walk away rather than spend too long in an unreasonable situation, though he seems always to have done his duty and tried to help others where possible. I don't know. I think he was a good guy. But of course you can draw your own conclusions too. Certainly he lived an exceptionally interesting and unusual life, suffered the culture shock attendant to his experiences, and I'm grateful that he chose to record the insights he was lucky enough to witness at such a pivotal time for both the Kulin Nations people and the European newcomers to Victoria. Larkin's Notes, a memorial to Buckley at St Leonard's, describes him as, quote, a pioneer in cultural understanding. Unquote. 
There are a couple of additional books added to this episode's reference list as we crossed into the history of the foundation of Melbourne, such as James Boyce's book 1835, The Founding of Melbourne and the Conquest of Australia, and Shaw's book A History of the Port Phillip District, Victoria Before Separation. But for anyone interested in following up on Buckley's story further, Gary Linnell's dramatised retelling in his book Buckley's Chance, the incredible true story of William Buckley and how he conquered a new world, is a very engaging read. In particular, he covers the time after Batman arrived, which I have largely skimmed over here, in excellent detail, and he's included notes and a strong bibliography at the end too. I'd certainly recommend that as a great read if you want more Buckley. (laughs) And as I've mentioned before, I think Larkin's book is a great resource. For my podcast recommendation today, I'm going to remind you about the Boyer Lectures. The Boyer Lectures are a series of talks by prominent Australians presenting ideas on major social, scientific or cultural issues and broadcast on ABC Radio National. The most recent ones, as I prepare this episode, are topical, relating to reconciliation and the legacy of colonisation. But other topics are wide-ranging, from Society in the Space Age to Shakespeare, Soul of the Age. (laughs) You can find the Boyer Lectures amongst the ABC podcast collections, but as always I will place a link to the series details on my webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. So thanks so much for listening to this recent series. Remember to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories podcast website and my contact details can be found there also. I'll be looking at a shorter single episode next time, exploring quite a different Australian story. So take care, and I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.